Well, good morning once again. Um, let, let's make sure you're listening. He is risen. All right, all right. So there is a question that we ask, and this morning we're finishing up a series um, called The Shepherd as we've been looking through what it means to be a shepherd of God's people as we are in this process here of selecting and appointing men to serve as shepherds over our church here at Shiloh Road. And so um, we want to continue to ask you to be in prayer about this process Um, Next week, we're going to begin a brand new series we'd love to invite you back to, and it's called Revealed. And the title comes from the book of John in the second chapter where John writes that all these things Jesus did was to reveal his glory. And we're going to look through these seven signs that happen in the book of John, and we're going to spend the next uh, seven, eight weeks there. And I want to encourage you to join us um, next week. We will begin that series. But today... I want to start with a question that we all have asked at different points along the way in our life. And it's one um, that you ask when you get the diagnosis. It's a question that seems to come up um, in those times of uncertainty. It comes up when the doctor says, you can take this child home from the hospital with you. It's a question that comes up when the divorce is final. It's a question that comes up when you realize that the money has run out and there's still month left. It's a question that you might ask when you've lost someone that's been such a big part of your life and so important to you in your development. It's a question that you ask and so many times is accompanied by its friends' fear and anxiety. It's a question that so many of us have asked, and the question is really simple. What now? What now? See, it's a question that Israel has been asking through this journey. God, we've listened to you. We've followed this leader, Moses, that you have given us. We're we're leaving Egypt. What now? What's the next step? What comes next? Where are we going? What's fixing to happen? And the thing with this question is that it has the tendency to rear its head when we find ourselves in these places of insecurity. These places where we're not really sure what we're going to do because the way we thought we were going has just changed and now the way that we thought we were going to go is no longer a possibility in the way that it was before. And so we ask this question, what what now? What comes next? And for Israel, they've left and we're going to kind of jump back in the story to a really prominent place in this story. This is from Exodus chapter 14, starting in verse 10, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there was no grave, there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us 
by bringing us out of Egypt. So we've left, we've followed you, we believe that God is saving us, but what now? And he starts off with this statement that when they looked up, they saw that the Egyptian army was coming after them. Have you ever looked up and realized that your past was pursuing you? That that what you thought was in the rearview mirror, what you thought was in the past, is right there behind you. You made the decision to forgive them, but yet every time you turn around, it's still popping up. You made the decision to leave the addiction, but then in these times when you least expect it, the temptation seems greater than it's ever been. You left this sin, and now you look back behind you, and it's right there once again. What do you do when you come to the realization that your past is pursuing you? They've left Egypt. They've left slavery. They've made the decision to move on. And they look up, and there are the Egyptians. They look up, and their past is right behind them. And what I think is so amazing in this story is the way that we see God's favor and God's hand upon his people. If you look back in the story to chapter 13... When Pharaoh let the people go, he did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though it was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. And so God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. And the Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Skipping down, after leaving Sukkoth, they encamped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night, a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of fire or neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp at Pi-Hiharoth between Migdol and the sea. There they are to encamp by the sea directly opposite of Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. See, here's the thing. If Pharaoh assumes that Israel is hemmed in by the desert, my guess is Israel would think the same thing. That they are surrounded. And so when they look up and they see Egypt closing in on them, the question of, well, what now? What do we do? What's the next step? Moses, where are we going? Because here's what we see when we look up. We see desert to the side. We see the Red Sea in front of us. 
And behind us, we see our past. We look up and we see desert to the side. We see the Red Sea in front of us. And then our past is still pursuing us. And we're not really sure where to go. But God is leading them. And he's taking them not on the the route they thought they would go. He says there was a shorter route. I mean, isn't that crazy? There, There is a shorter way to the destination, and God does not lead them that direction. When I was in youth ministry, we went on a wilderness trek one year. And because of some fires and some things that had happened, there was some parts of the trail that we couldn't go on. And we parked literally right above our high camp. Like our guides were telling us later, after we got off the mountain, we could have made it up there in about an hour. But we walked for eight hours back and forth around the mountain, up the mountain, just simply to walk for the experience. And then we found out later, oh, there was a shorter route. Now, a couple of us used the shorter route on the way home to go get breakfast in town and then bring the cars back to pick up the kids. We we took advantage that there was a shorter route. But isn't it funny that God uses a longer route? He takes them the way they probably wouldn't have chosen to go. He takes them around, although there was a shorter route route. We said really early in this series back in week one that God will take you to places that you have not chosen to go in order to produce in you what you are incapable of achieving on your own. The Bible calls that grace. God's hand and God's favor is leading the people Not the shortest, not the easiest, not the most direct path, but he's taking them somewhere to produce something in them that they are incapable of achieving on their own. And and God knows something really important about us. The reason he took them on the shorter route was because he was afraid if they faced war, they might go back. Because God knows something about our nature, about our human nature and who we are. When we face insecurity, when we face uncertainty, we always try to go back to safety. We we try to go back, not to what is safe, but to what we know. Even when what we know might not be safe. See, God was afraid that if he took them on the short route, they may look up, they might see the Egyptians at some point, They might face these other countries, and they might go back to slavery. Isn't it interesting that that people could possibly be set set free from the slavery they're running from, and yet in the same moment want to go back to it? To be set free from something that enslaved you, and then have this desire within you to go back 
to it. And so you have the deserts on the side, you have the Red Sea in front, you have the Egyptians behind. And it looks like to keep, keep going forward is certainly death. To keep, to keep going forward is a dead end. To, to keep going forward is to lose hope. Because there's no way you can get around the sea. And isn't it interesting that on this side, what looks like a dead end, what looks like death, on the other side looks like grace. On the other side looks like salvation. As they come through the water, what they thought was the end is a new beginning. See, there was a shorter route, but God did not take them that way. See, what, what, I, find, what I find is we like the concept. We, we like the concept of leaving Egypt. We like the concept of the promised land. We like the concept of new life. We like the concept until the concept gets a context. And we take the concept and we put it within a specific context and now it has some pretty big implications. I like the concept of forgiveness. But when you put forgiveness in the context of my everyday life, it has some pretty big implications. I like the concept of eating healthy. In fact, we have about six to eight cookbooks with healthy meals in them. And we could, without any effort, find a different meal to eat for the next three or four months, healthy, good for us. But when you take the concept and you put it in the context of our busy family, it gets a little more difficult See, I like the concept of forgiveness until we put it in the context of someone hurting me, until we put it in the context of someone taking something from me, until we put it in the context of someone talking badly about me. We like the context, the concept, but when you put it in the context, it gets a little more difficult. Israel loves the concept of leaving Egypt. They love the concept of leaving slavery behind. They love the idea of new life. Until you put it in this context. Where when you leave Egypt, the promised land is not a straight shot. We're going to go around by a different route. Until you put it in the context that the, comp- the, the country that you're leaving behind, that you're crippling, they're going to follow you. And they're going to want you to come back as their slaves. See, here's why this is important. Because God's calling to you and to, I, to me is never just simply a concept. 
It is always a concept in the middle of context. It's always specific. And for Israel, leaving Egypt has this really specific context. And so then, and this is where the the picture becomes so beautiful. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the water swept them into the sea. The Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and the horsemen. The entire army that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. Notice this. Their past that is pursuing them, it goes into the sea with them, but it does not come out. Their past goes into the sea with them, but it does not come out. The Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. And that day, the Lord saved Israel from the hand of the Egyptians. See, this, this question of what now? What, what comes next? It was in the middle of that question, the context of everything that's happening, that God uses what looks like impossibility to bring salvation. He he leads them into death to bring them into new life. He, He leads them into what looks like a dead end to give them his grace. He takes them to a place they have not chosen to go in order to produce in them what they are incapable of achieving on their own. What now? What comes next? What's the next step, Moses? See, that's the same question. Several thousand years later, there are some disciples asking. Because this Jesus that we were following has died on a cross, and he was crucified, and he was buried, and he was placed in a tomb. So what now? What's the, the next step? What are we supposed to do next? And when Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. They asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. 
See the place where they lay him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. And they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. See, we're not real accustomed to resurrection. Even though we have springtime, even though our bodies are incredibly capable of healing themselves, even though we see new life every single day, we're not real accustomed to looking for it and seeing resurrection. And so when these ladies find resurrection, they're afraid. See, we're a lot better at seeing death. We're a lot better at seeing what is right in front of us and being reminded of what's behind us. See, for Israel, it was the desert on the side, it was the Red Sea in front, and it was their past that was pursuing them. When they looked up, they saw what was behind them. When they looked up, they saw their past that was behind them. But but you fast forward to the tomb, and when they looked up, what they expected to see was not there. The past that they remembered, a, a dead Jesus in the tomb with a stone rolled in front of it, when they looked up, they saw an open tomb. When they looked up, they saw a stone that had been rolled away. When they looked up, they saw life in the place of death. And they were terrified. And it's interesting, as you listen to the writer, it almost sounds like they're walking to the tomb. They're walking back to their past and what they remember. But when they encounter new life in place of death, they run away from it. And it's really interesting that that's how the narrative portion of Mark, the story, just stops. And the next thing you know, you have this section that's talking about Mary Magdalene and Mary going and telling these disciples about Jesus. Almost like part of the story was somehow lost. Like, like we're missing something. But, but that's where the narrative ends. Trembling, bewildered, afraid. They run from it. So I want to ask a, a question. These disciples, these women, these people that have spent the last three years with Jesus every single day have heard him talk over and over and over about life after death, about resurrection, about him rising. And for some reason, when they actually encounter it, 
they run from it. When they come face to face with new life, fear overwhelms them. And they run from it and they're afraid. I'm guessing there's part of the story of Mark that's been lost. Where they encounter Jesus. And where these women go and tell the disciples what has happened. And how Jesus has risen. You see, it's death that leads them into the tomb. But when they look up, they find life. And it's the presence of Jesus that leads them out of the tomb. They go looking for a dead, crucified Jesus. And they are confronted with life. And they go out. And, and I love the way John, or I'm sorry, Mark speaks these words. He says, He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. See, see, we have this fascination with fear. We have this fascination, this fixation with anxiety. And with everything going on in our world, we tend to cling so much to what we are afraid of. We cling so much to what we do not know. And we allow fear to control what we are doing. We allow fear to control our decisions. We allow fear to keep us from fully following Jesus. But the beauty of this story is that Jesus, when they get to the tomb, is not there. He is risen and he's gone ahead of them. See, for Israel, leaving Egypt... They have the desert on the sides. They have the Egyptians behind them. They have the Red Sea in front of them. And then as they encounter the tomb, there's desert surrounding them. There's Roman governance behind them. But when they look up, what they see is an empty tomb. How does the empty tomb change the way you see the world? How does the empty tomb change the way that you see death? How does the empty tomb change the way you answer the question, what now? What, what comes next in the story? For both of them, they look at death and they walk into certain death and they walk through it and find life. Isn't it amazing that God has for centuries led his people through the water into new life? And notice this, he leads them into the water as slaves. And they come out on the other side, not just made better, 
but made new. They come out on the other side of the water with a new identity. They, they come out on the other side of the water not as slaves, but as God's children who have been set free. And it's the picture that we celebrate and we have celebrated for centuries. As God's people, we walk into the waters of baptism and we come out on the other side not made better, but made new. Because it's in baptism that we find new life. It's in baptism that we enter into Christ. It's in baptism that we're made new. It's in baptism that we're recreated. It's in baptism that our sins are washed away. It's in baptism that we are set free from our past that's pursuing us. It's in baptism that we're set free from our sins that's enslaved us for so long. It's in baptism that we encounter an empty tomb and that we find resurrection and that we are set free. And we celebrate new life. Paul in Romans 6 says that we are therefore buried with him in baptism. Just as Christ died, that we too are raised into this new life. That for centuries we have walked into the water and we have come out on the other side as a new creation. Set free paid and bought for with the price of the blood of Christ. You see, Jesus did not come to save you from God. We, we have this tendency to think of Jesus as coming to save us from God. Jesus did not come to save you from God. Jesus came to reveal God as Savior. And just as God saved Israel through the water... And just as he led them into the promised land through the water, and just as he saved Moses through the water, and just as he saved Noah and his children through the water, he still saves you and I through the water. Today, just as it has been from the beginning. And so many times it is fear that keeps us from walking forward into death to find that new life. It's fear because we see our past that is pursuing us that we cannot escape and it keeps popping up. The forgiveness that we tried to give, the addiction that we've tried to shake, the selfishness and the pride that we cannot let go of. But what we find in Christ is that we enter into that death. We come through on the other side made new. You see, some of you, need to be reminded of that today because you need to enter the water and have your life made new. But there's a whole lot of you here this morning that need to be reminded of that because you have already made that journey. And yet you still live your life in fear. You still live your life afraid of what is on the sides, afraid of what is in front of you, and afraid of what is behind you. And what we celebrate today is an empty tomb. What we celebrate today is when they looked up, they didn't see the army that had held them slaves for centuries. What they saw when they looked up was an empty tomb and a risen Savior. And today we have life. 
when they looked up. When they looked up, they saw life. So a question this morning. For those of you that have entered into that death and been raised into new life, do you live like it? Or does your story end where Mark's narrative ends? With running away in fear and trembling. But my guess is, somewhere in this story, these women encounter the risen Jesus. Not not just the possibility that the tomb is empty and that he's not there. But they come face to face with him. And he gives them the courage to go tell these disciples. And Mark, and he ends this story, the the early church put together this, um, this ending to Mark. And they said, well, here's what Jesus has commanded you to do, just like he did in Mark, or Matthew, and in Luke. Go and preach the good news, the gospel to everyone. And those who are baptized will be saved, and those who are not will be condemned. If you have new life, if you have that hope within you, Live like it today. Because all around you, there are politicians that are saying, you need to be afraid. You need to be afraid of this country. You need to be afraid of this decision. There's fear surrounding us. But what you know, and what I know, is the tomb is empty. And we have the hope of life where death once reigned. And they looked up, and they saw the stone had been rolled away. Today, Would you please simply look up and realize the stone has been rolled away and the grave is empty and death has no sting, no final word. Father, today, Father, I pray for your people in this church. Father, I pray that we hear this message and we're reminded of the courage that we have in an empty tomb. That we're reminded of the assurance that we have as we walk through the waters and into new life. We're reminded of the hope that we have in Jesus, our Savior, who is risen. He is risen from the dead and he now reigns. And Father, in him, we have the hope that one day we will reign with you. Father, as your children, adopted sons, adopted daughters, made new by the blood of Jesus. And Father, we thank you for this gift. We thank you for new life. We thank you that when they looked up,
the stone had been rolled away. Pray this in Jesus' most powerful name. Amen. If you have never given your life to Christ, we simply offer you that invitation this morning to walk into the waters of baptism and come out made new as a new creation, recreated by God, not just made better, but made new. Come today, give your life to him, surrender your life to him, walk into death and find new life. If we could simply pray for you wherever you are, we'll have shepherds and ministry staff as well around the auditorium. I'll be up front, but whatever we could do, come while we stand and sing.